Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block, and today we have a very exciting episode of the show. We're back in venture capital land. We have two great guests on the other side of the mic from Sequoia Capital, Michelle Bailey and Sean McGuire. Thank you so much for stopping by. Unless you've been under a rock, you probably know that Sequoia recently came out with an announcement of a $500 million plus fund focused on liquid tokens and digital assets, and they're part of this broader wave of capital pouring into the crypto world. I, I tweeted this last night. I don't know if you guys saw it. In 2014, venture capital funds poured $900 million into crypto startups. 2017, the heady days of the ICO boom, we saw $2.2 billion. Last year in 2021, $32 billion. So you guys are joining the party, the frenzy and the fun. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Frank. Where does that money even go? That's so much money. That's a lot of money, right? I mean, it goes into <laughs> uh, these seed rounds that have billion-dollar valuations now. This is the new paradigm in which you are now forced to operate. So walk us through a little bit about the, the firm's crypto journey and your guys' involvement in it. Thanks for having us, Frank. This is a blast. We're big fans. And your mustache looks even better on video than in photos. Well, I want to just give you guys some props. I think this is a message out there to the A16Zs, the Tigers, and the Kotus. Sequoia was on the scoop first. That's a crypto native badge of honor. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. And you got the scoop first, Frank. So look, Sequoia has been in crypto first investments in 2015, but it wasn't the top area that we were investing in. That really changed over the last couple of years where I think Crypto has just become a full firm-wide effort. And you know, one of the things we're absolutely most excited about as a firm, last year it was over 20% of our investments, you know, over 20 unique crypto investments. Some of them haven't yet been announced. We got feedback from founders that the area where we had the most opportunity to improve was on the liquid side. And this fund is really like a response to that. 
to people that are fully crypto native and just only living in crypto, this may seem a little hard to understand, but Sequoia kind of over the last 50 years has built up decision-making processes that have gone through many transitions, gone from silicon to internet, gone from internet infrastructure to doing very well with consumer web, doing very well with fintech. And one of the things that helped Sequoia do that was by having only one team. We've never had a sector-specific fund before. And by having everyone in the same room, you know, you transition knowledge from the past to the future and from the future back to the past. You kind of get very alternative viewpoints. And we, we've historically had unanimous decision-making. So for us to start a crypto fund was a really big deal and something we're very proud of. But as we did it, we're trying to solve kind of a unique constraint where we want a pocket of deeply crypto native people that can move at lightning speed, you know, at the speed of crypto. But we also want to maintain that Sequoia heritage of having the whole team make decisions, having the whole team learn about crypto, having the crypto native people benefit from the wisdom of people like Ruloff and Mike Moritz and others that have deep, you know, fintech experience. Mm. And so this, this crypto fund is, is really only one prong in a multi-prong approach. We're still going to make crypto investments out of our traditional funds or seed venture, you know, growth funds. Anyways, that's kind of the lay of the land, but it's, it's a really big deal. This is the first sector-specific fund we've had. You want to weigh in on this journey, Michelle, from your perspective? Yeah. You know, I joined Sequoia less than two years ago during the pandemic. And I think what's interesting during that time is the explosion in high quality people working in crypto. I think before there were a lot of obviously brilliant people working in the space, but the community was much smaller. And what's so interesting now is talking to so many founders and builders who say, you know, they had been interested, they had been following it, they'd been tinkering, but they jumped in during the pandemic and during 2020. And so I think what I'm most excited about is that we are at the very beginning of the S-curve in crypto. I think it's really day one. I think there are so many more people building in all aspects of the space that the next decade plus of crypto investing will be even tremendously more exciting than the last. I don't know where that 30 billion number will go that you cited, but I I think that over the next decade, we'll see even more important projects and innovation than we have in the past. So I'm very excited about it. So the launch of this new sector-specific fund is pretty reflective of a broader theme of traditional venture firms kind of either earmarking or starting new crypto-specific operations. There's Bessemer as an example, firms like Jump Capital launch Jump Crypto, so just specific operations in the crypto market, the launch of Bain Capital Crypto. Is this theme or kind of story here tied to reaching out to founders? Do you reckon that founders only want to engage with a crypto-specific entity when raising capital? Or is it giving you more flexibility to do different things for those founders? Or a mix of both? And being honest, I think it's a mix of both. Crypto founders now have a lot more options than they did in the past. You know, like there were so few VCs that would invest in crypto, at least during the bear markets the last five years, that kind of the those funds had huge amounts of leverage and could operate kind of in a way that was very beneficial to the funds. That leverage has shifted to the founders. And now the founders kind of get to 
be very selective and, and choose what they want. And I do think that in general, crypto moves so fast that crypto founders want to work with funds that can move incredibly fast, deeply understand their problems, deeply understand the landscape. Those properties are primarily going to live within crypto-specific funds rather than in you know generalist funds. And so I think that's part of it. But I think if you still have those properties as a generalist fund, then you can still be pretty appealing to crypto founders. But there's just there's not many generalist funds that have those properties. And what are those properties specifically? Is it participation in governance? Is it helping bootstrap liquidity early on for a token trading or DEX platform? What properties exist there? Look, the first level is literally showing up in a meeting and having the VCs know what Terra is or know what an AMM is, you know, like the bar has been very low. And Mm. so first bar is just that you're talking to people that have knowledge of the space. And like, I I think Sequoia has got in there. Not all funds have. The next level is actually being able to participate in an active way help your portfolio companies get security audits, helping with governance, helping with tokenomics. Like, you know, it's all the levels of service, staking tokens, which candidly was hard to do as a traditional venture capital firm. And part of the backdrop here is Sequoia transition. We we just launched the Sequoia fund, which is kind of a big evolution of Sequoia's model. We had to become what's called a registered investment advisor. We're now an open-ended fund. It's a high regulatory burden, but it gives us a lot more flexibility around what we can do on the liquid side. Michelle? Yeah, I think to your point, every crypto founder is so different. And you know this from all your work being so deep in the community and talking to different people. People want really different things. Even just the founders I work with range from, I think, age 19 to 40s. Some are on their first company. Some are on their you know later company. Some are building in smart contracts, some are building what really is an enterprise software company that's serving crypto. Some are building really consumer apps and consumer marketplaces. And so as crypto grows in so many directions from the core layer one, layer two challenges to DeFi, to NFTs, to Web3 applications, to consumer infrastructure, to enterprise infrastructure, all those businesses and all those people are so different. So some of them want help on you know, if you're a protocol, very protocol specific things, like I really care that, you know, the investors I work with are active in governance, that they propose protocols, they vote on them, etc. Others really care, you know, they feel like they've got the crypto stuff figured out. And they say, hey, I have no idea how to build a great consumer app, or I don't know how to think about a structure for this part of our company. How do I hire? What's a great CMO look like? What does it mean to market to developers? So there are tons of questions people face that are pretty broad and varied. And I think when a lot of founders come to us, one of the things that they value is that they get everything. They get someone who is deeply crypto native, understands it within this broader firm that has huge experience across engineering challenges, hiring challenges, market challenges, whatever else you know could come up. And so I think that's the value is that crypto founders can sort of have it all. Got it. Maybe we can like zero in on a specific example, if you don't mind. You guys are announcing on the show your investment in Layer Zero Labs. It's a $135 million round co-led with FTX Ventures and Andreessen Horowitz. Participation from Coinbase, PayPal, et cetera. 
Walk us through the thesis that informed the investment in this specific company, but we're kind of talking about what companies need, how founders are different. In the instance of Leia Zero, they come to Sequoia, what are they looking for, and how are you guys going to deliver what they're looking for? I can jump in, but to give you the, the true scoop is that they did not come to Sequoia. I came to them and John and I came to them. And what did you say, Michelle? What was the pitch? Yeah. So I had been following Brian on Twitter for a while and Sean has separate connections that we'll come back to, but mostly just because I thought Brian had really interesting contributions to crypto Twitter. <laughs> and there were some hints he was building something. They had published a couple blog posts. And then he was tweeting about, I'm building the greatest team in history and no one knows about it yet in crypto. And I thought, okay, he's got to be building something. So I just DM'd him and said, hey, do you want to meet with Sequoia? Do you want to talk? And he said, yes. And in our first meeting, I was blown away by hearing him talk about Bridges and the way that they were trying to solve this. And I think there was a, a recent tweet that you shared, Frank, about talking to someone about bridges and, and thinking that you're not smart enough to work in the space. And I thought, I might Brutal. know who that is. <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> so That's exactly who it was. Yeah, exactly. So Brian's brilliant. So I said, Sean, you got to meet Brian. He's awesome. And Sean said, I invested in Brian's previous company. There's so many connections here. It's so interesting. And so we pulled the team together. We had a meeting on a Saturday with myself, Sean, Alfred Lynn, and Mike Renal. Tried to like tear apart their white papers, understand how they were solving the problem uniquely. Wrote a memo in a caffeine-fueled 10 hours and sent it out. And because we had already decided as a firm that we had a perspective on a multi-chain future and that interoperability would be important. And Sean was a huge part of that and sharing that thesis. We approved the investment in, I guess, like 48 hours. And so that's the story of how we pitched them. But then to your point of why they decided to work with us, I'm guessing that it is because of feeling like they had people who really understood crypto and could move really quickly in myself and Sean. But also, for instance, I remember him saying, the four of you really tried to engage on the way that we had constructed layer zero and how it was working versus focusing on kind of the easy questions about, oh, you know, certain competition or, you know, lazy analysis that we had tried to really dig in and that they felt like they would get people who were deeply committed to crypto within all the other stuff that we try to bring our founders. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So just to kind of unpack exactly what Layer Zero is doing, right? We're talking about bridging. Ah, bridging, just like the meme, right? I mean, <laughs> it's been a big topic of conversation given a lot of the recent breaches that have happened with Wormhole and then yesterday with Ronin. So it's a very tricky thing to get right. And I think a lot of it has to do with maybe the lack of validators in the space. What do you guys think is the main issue behind why we're seeing a lot of these technical hiccups? So a couple things. One is that ideas in crypto follow S-curves where they're like not very obvious and then something will happen like Solana starts to take off. And so it's like, oh, wow, we might live in a multi-chain future. And then Avalanche is also taking off. And like the idea itself becomes really obvious really, really quickly. And then there's kind of like the tail of the S-curve. And people oftentimes don't start 
building for things until the idea starts to become really obvious. I think a lot of the bridges that are going to come were just responses to the rise of Solana and Avalanche like nine months ago or six months ago. Um, Layer Zero happened to have been working on this for a couple of years. And so, you know, I, I think they had more time to really think super deeply about this. But when you're building responses to some immediate problem, you know, it's hard to get it right. The second aspect of that is that I do think that bridging is just like a new security paradigm. People understand security on single chains pretty well. There's all these weird artifacts that happen at the interface between chains. And I just don't think people understand those things yet. And, you know, as Layer Zero was going through their audit process, there's just all these weird kind of interface artifacts that I don't think people had really explored, except maybe Samsung, because he's he kind of knows everything. He's exploring everything. He might be behind both of you right now at the same time. <laughs> Somehow able to sort of like transcend the the laws of physics and that would be awesome. I, I would believe it. Yeah, you don't want to get a you don't want to get a late night DM from him. So <laughs> what do you what do you do as a venture partner when you have a portfolio company that maybe experiences a big breach or hack? This is clearly a concern. How do you respond to and prepare for major portfolio? Companies being hacked. Shout out to Ansley Harris at Fast Company for the question. Well, I come from a cybersecurity background. Like I started a cybersecurity company, sold it to Palatine Networks for a little over a billion dollars. You know, I worked at DARPA, the research arm of the US Department of Defense, doing cybersecurity work and all that. And I mean, this part is a, like an old problem. You know, like you basically do the same thing you do in classic cybersecurity. The specific problems you run into in the tools are very different, but everyone is going to get hacked. Like you need to assume that you're going to get hacked. You need to assume there are bugs in your code and you need to just be hyper vigilant. You can never let your guard down. You have to hopefully have auditors on speed dial that you've done a lot of favors for so that they're willing to do a favor for you when something goes wrong, because it will. I think that's actually a mistake that a lot of people make is like their relationships are very transactional and you got to kind of build two-way relationships that people are ready to help you when you need it. And I think you just try to build in as many redundancies as possible, especially anything that touches money. And so I, I just, I'm sorry if that's a kind of vague answer, but I think it's just, you will get hacked and you have to be prepared for that. Yeah. Are you willing to uh, step up to the plate and cover some of it to lend a helping hand? I mean, we've done it a lot. Michelle helped get an audit firm for Layer Zero as they were auditing their smart contract. Like whenever they found some issues, like we jumped in and were on late night calls with them. And so 100% we're willing to jump in. I think behind the thesis of investing in Layer Zero is this idea or this conviction that we are going to live in a multi-chain future. But currently right now, the technology is just it's not there. Right. And it's super important. Like if we can't figure this out, there's going to be a lot of issues, especially with the development of specific app chains. Right. If I'm building a game on a subnet of Avalanche or something, there needs to be a bridge between even that app chain and the underlying blockchain itself. And so if there aren't solutions to make it like 
not stressful for people to go between an underpinning blockchain and a game. Games are supposed to be fun. It's not going to work. Like it's <laughs> so. Uh, it's so funny. Whenever I think about bridging, I think of um, a colleague of mine was literally moving funds like as the wormhole hack was happening. And he like described to me the immense blood pressure rising trauma that he went through. And honestly, I think even for people who are like moving insignificant amounts of money in a more calm, sanguine time, you bridge it and it's like a black box and it's freaking scary. So like, obviously, if we don't fix that, it's just going to, I don't know. I don't. How do you guys see that progressing? I think we totally agree. And you said it very well. I mean, a lot of things in crypto are supposed to be fun. And there are other things in crypto. Crypto is many things. It is both entertainment. There are games. There are applications. There's also a future financial system. And that is supposed to be important and secure. (laughs) That's important for a lot of people. So we are absolutely right. It's a huge area where we think there's going to be tremendous innovation because it just has to happen. And the reason that we had conviction in multi-chain months ago was because we saw the stable developer momentum on multiple chains. So I think that's something where there are developers committed to building, you know, on multiple chains. It's not just one. And that's where you can't fake it with liquidity. That's easier to move. That's real human energy building. That's a commitment to an ecosystem. And also we saw that, you know, we talk a lot with the researchers at a lot of different layer ones. And we think that there will, for the next several years of crypto, demand for block space will far outstrip supply. And that each layer one has made different trade-offs in terms of security and scalability and decentralization. And they even have different languages often around them that make it easier to build certain applications. In which case, we can't expect one chain to do everything for everyone. And the better answer for developers and protocols and users is to be able to have this spectrum. You know, if I'm playing a game, I just want it to be fun. I want an easy user experience. I don't want to worry about it. And I also don't need it to be as secure and decentralized as Bitcoin, probably. All the way to Bitcoin, where if this is supposed to be, you know, state-free money, I, I really want this to be quite decentralized and secure for me to trust it. And so... The answer is let that spectrum exist and let the natural evolution of the space fall into what chain is best for them. And layer twos are a huge part of that as well. But then be able to enable, ideally, the complete abstraction of bridging from users. And I think that's what we're working towards and what layer zero is working towards. But it will certainly take continued innovation because it's a really hard problem. And Frank, if I can just say one thing to the very beginning of that question, which is like, Bridge security has been tough. There's been a couple recent hacks. Like, first of all, feel very bad for those protocols. Like, getting hacked sucks, and I hope they're successful. But also, just like in the historical lens of crypto, whenever something is a really new kind of idea, oftentimes, like, you ship it with major failure points or vulnerabilities. You know, there's the DAO hack, which is massive, there's early DeFi hacks, block size and Bitcoin might not have been optimal. Like, there's Tons and tons of examples. We'll get more stability over time in this space, but I do think that bridges, like the next year, like it is a completely new security paradigm. It's there's all these weird artifacts that we don't understand yet, and so I do think that there will probably be some more scary attacks. And like for anyone that's operating crypto, you need to understand that when you're on the cutting edge, like there's going to be more risk than kind of when you're 
in the older, more established, more hardened areas. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. Just to zoom out for a bit, you know, when the announcement came out in February that you guys were launching this new fund, the Twitter world was somewhat sent into a tizzy. They were all wondering... Are they going to be buying publicly listed tokens? Are they buying my bags or just, you know, insider seed deals? How do you think about your approach to the equity crypto world, the token crypto investment opportunity, and then those that are kind of already out there in the public market? Are you engaging with those opportunities as well? We're going to be doing all of it. You know, the crypto fund in particular is designed to primarily invest in liquid tokens. So that'll both be the pre-launch protocols, and it will also be buying other people's bags. Mm -hmm. Just as a thought experiment, like, I don't think Solana was obvious when SBF like tweeted about it, mm -hmm. that he would buy it $3. But I do think that a couple months later, like, when developers were really starting to go into it, like, you know, $20 or whatever. Yeah. I think it was more obvious. And like it, this fund, I hope would have found something like Solana and picked up some of the early adopters of Solana's bags, like just to back test as an example. And then with equity investments, like we've been doing lots of equity investments out of our traditional funds. And so the equity investments still, still primarily come out of the traditional funds but this fund will be able to make those as well. Like if maybe like the small crypto native decision makers 
see something that others don't or if need to move faster than kind of the traditional funds are able to. So it's a nuanced answer. It's a mixed bag, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. High dimensional mixed bag. I mean, obviously, at the start of the show, we looked at just the amount of capital pouring into this market. There's been a large number of new fund launches recently, and it's really inflating the valuations of some of these companies. You know, you look at something like Board Ape Yacht Club raised $450 million in a seed round, which valued them at $4 billion. We don't want to pick on the Yuga Labs folks, but I think this is indicative of a broader trend. How do you invest in a market where seed stage companies have a $4 billion valuation? I mean, that's going to assume a crazy upside. I can take a swing. One thing that, of course, you know, but it's helpful to say is that a lot of times rounds are called a name like a seed or an A because it's the first round a company raised, but it doesn't actually mean the company has no revenue or no product or no people, right? And so that's always confusing. Like this happens, of course, even outside of crypto. You know, there was the famous Notion 2 billion series A. That was just the first letter in the alphabet to describe the round, but there was a much larger business than your typical seed at that time. So I think that's helpful because crypto projects raise at really different rates, really different scales. Some build out a lot before they ever take outside money. And so they're not always apples to apples. However, your comment is still valid. It's certainly an exciting environment. There's a lot of FOMO investing, which on the one hand can be good for founders. I think the way we try to approach it is focusing on really outlier founders where we think the project has exponential impact. And it's hard. We try to be really selective and focus on very few number of high conviction partnerships rather than doing everything where prices can get really inflated. And it's tough to see how returns can be generated without believing in another, you know, huge recent bull market in crypto. Frank, I believe that all four of the following things are true. Mm -hmm. One, I believe that crypto is probably the biggest mega trend of the next 30 years, you know, similar to the internet starting in the 90s. Two, I believe that things are overpriced right now in general, similar to the internet in late 90s. Three, Google was formed in the late 90s and, you know, became a, I don't know the market cap today, but, you know, roughly trillion dollar company. I think that there are crypto companies right now that even if they're highly priced, like, have massive, you know, room to run and, and will be just behemoths. And it's our job to find those. And four, we have to be very selective given the environment. And so we pass on a lot of companies due to price, like due to the deal not making sense for us, even if we love the founders and love the idea. Anyways, all four of those things are true, in my opinion. Yeah, I talked to a lot of VCs about this specific question, and it does boiled down to, and maybe a skeptic would say this is some form of cope or something, but there is a huge upside to what's going to happen in this market. And so you need to get some poker chips at the table. You got to play. If there's a high buy-in, that's fine because the opportunity is so is so big. Since we kind of brought into the fold Board Ape Yacht Club, they're kind of my muse, that parlays well into 
the NFT space. I'm keen to get your thoughts on what's going on there. Do you have any contrarian thoughts regarding NFTs? And maybe what's your estimation on the timeline for an actual usable metaverse NFT experience to come to fruition? Love NFTs. I was late to NFTs, didn't start buying NFTs probably until like mid last year, Mm. you know, own a couple NFTs that I'm proud of and that like I have a kind of like an emotional connection to, you know, my profile picture is an NFT I own. All that said, like, I think it is, there's so many scams happening in NFTs. There's so many pump and dump schemes, like, you know, wash trading. And so I just, similar to the last answer, like, I believe NFTs are going to be like a new primitive that have enduring value and will do really interesting things with over the next 20 years. But there's a lot of hype with some of the projects right now that I don't think will be enduring. And so anyways, that's high level answer. Yeah. What do you think makes an NFT project something that will not endure? The analogy I have is art where... When you walk in Manhattan, there's people, painters that make these little $20 paintings on the street. And sometimes they're actually pretty high quality, like they're really talented, but they didn't do anything that novel. They didn't get the right initial buyers behind it. No community got built. Like the top art brokers didn't pump it to other people. I just, my mental model is that NFTs today, like if NFTs are digital art before all the utility, then it's just really similar to classical art where I think less than 0.0001% of art projects end up being really kind of enduring for long periods of time. And so it'll be things like who really started a new revolution, you know, like who had some new techniques, some new big idea, who got really famous buyers like to support the project that makes other people want to join that community. And then when you get into the utility side, I think things will be different, you know, but I, I just don't, to your metaverse question, like, I personally don't really see the metaverse utility yet. You see the early glimmers and I think it will come, but I don't know what shape or form that will take. Michelle, bullish, bearish on metaverse. You know, I think I'm more bullish than Sean, actually. It's so hyped that it's so easy to say like, yawn, it will never happen or we're very far out. And we may be. I think some people tend to think about this as happening in VR, which I think from all my research, does still need more work to get to something that's a you know mass market platform. But I think if you define the metaverse quite broadly in terms of you know games like we work with Rec Room, which doesn't participate in crypto today, but is a really fun game, you know, user generated content where a lot of people spend a lot of hours. Could I see something like that where? your NFTs or some aspect of your crypto history informs your interaction in their shot. Is that the <laughs> Oculus VR. that you're putting on? To those listening, I, yeah, I put on some <laughs> VR goggles. I want to get um, one of those to do like a walkthrough on um, like how it works. Maybe I could stop by one day when I'm in LA and, and use yours. Come by anytime. Sean loves games. You should you should stop by and play video games with Sean anytime. Well, I bet you. I mean, I'm surprised that that you're more bullish than than Sean because I think <laughs> I think it's really hard to grasp the utility of NFTs and metaverse if you're not a gamer. That's why it was kind of difficult for me at first. I couldn't conceptualize. I mean, I obviously played video games, but 
I'm not a gamer, but I think if you are, then you you really gronk the value in being able to sort of extract value from what exists in this world that you're already contributing what is, in my opinion, the most precious thing in the world, time, hours and hours of time, and you get enjoyment out of that, which is great. It's probably the more important thing, but it would be great as well to be able to extract some sort of economic value. Just to be clear, I don't think of metaverse as games. And so I think we might have had definitional mismatch. Mm. Like the value of NFTs in games is very clear and I think is very near term, like already here in some narrow domains. Metaverse to me is when you have like a spatial component, when people are kind of living in it, you know, getting closer to like a second life or, and there are people living in the metaverse today, especially in VR, but the role that NFTs play there to me is still a few years away and a little unclear. And the metaverse NFTs right now just to me don't pass the sniff test. Michelle, final word on NFTs, metaverse. Yeah, it's interesting that your point about gamers. I think the gaming community has had a pretty divisive response to NFTs. There are some people who love it and are excited about it and others who, you know, you see the Discord hate and get NFTs out of my game. What's interesting to me is I think the arts community, which is got the you know message really quickly. Wow, I can finally monetize and earn money and invest in my collection over time and have that reward people who believed in me very quickly. And so to me, what I always kind of laugh about coming from a family of artists is that people keep saying, oh, NFTs have no utility. And I just think that's not correct. They do have utility. I identify with this thing. I love it. I look at it every day. It makes me happy. It's fun. That is useful to me. Or it helps me communicate something about my life. I think that is utility. And so people can have different things that they are looking for. But I think we already do have NFTs that have some utility. We'll get more over time as the technology evolves. But that's, for me, my hot take. I think NFTs are already useful to artists and to collectors. So how did you explain NFTs to your artist family? It was a quick conversion of hearts? Yeah. You know, my family was much more interested in NFTs than in other parts of crypto. They got it right away. My brother's a digital artist. My dad's an artist. And they completely understood. My mom was like, this makes so much sense. You can do digital art and have it be sold as the real one instead of just getting it copied. And so they got that more than most other things in crypto. And like, I think if you really totaled it up, I think I probably have more of my crypto net worth in NFTs than in tokens. So I, I think I'm probably living in that and maybe it's a little on the edge, but but yeah, they, they were very bought in early on. Awesome. I want to end the conversation with a, a simple question, which is obviously like Sequoia is fairly sought after. I mean, I tweeted about the conversation today and everyone is like, why are they not investing in my series B or series A? Also a lot of very <laughs> funny, uh, tree puns someone asked what are their thoughts on the cost of lumber um somebody somebody asked um what is their second favorite tree why are their trees so big what's it like to make a tree uh <laughs> it's like dozens of these um do they ever get jealous of the deciduous which is i guess a bush so anyway like when you think about the inbounds you get 
what distinguishes a good founder and good company, one that you would want to invest in, right? Because it's deciding from a large group of good people who you're going to make a bet on. How do you make that process? How do we boil it down? So I'll go first. This is the hardest thing we do. And you really don't get to partner with many founders in your career. You know, historically, it's like 30 to 60 companies. If you have a 20-year career, it's really not that many. It's a few a year. And so to be candid, for me, it's oftentimes having like three things. One is having a prepared mind on space. Like with Layer Zero, Michelle, you know, found them on Twitter, reached out, you know, I had written a thesis on multi-chain future back in July. And like, so we had a prepared mind on the space and Michelle very much had a prepared mind as well. Second is having a prepared mind on the people. And what I mean by that is like, I have a hard time investing in a company if I only meet the founders during a fundraising cycle and I have to make a decision in one or two weeks. When you're getting into business with someone for many years, I just really care about knowing them as a person and like trusting them and having that relationship. And so I've almost every investment I've ever made, I've known the people for at least a few months before investing. So I would just say, come to us and get us, get to know us when you're not fundraising. It's actually really important. And then the third thing is just catching like me or anyone like at a time when there's like some luck to the timing there of like, if I'm in the middle of one of my companies has a major emergency and I'm stressed, like I might not be thinking clearly about an opportunity. And so anyways, those are for me, the three things. Michelle? If I had to boil it down, I think the most important things I look for are clock speed and clear thinking. I think the founders that I love to work with and that have produced, you know, venerable projects and companies are incredibly quick. They have just a breathtaking clock speed when you talk with them. And they're very clear in their thinking and communication about what they're doing and why. And you could spend an hour with them and then you could spend seven more hours and you can have full depth in every question you ask in terms of the clarity of their answers, why they did a certain thing, why they chose this market, why they think this solution. And when I hear that clear thinking, it's not just for me as an investor to understand their perspective, but it also gives me confidence. One of the things that you do as a founder is that you have to tell everyone else that you're working with what you're doing and why and why it's important. You have to tell customers what you're doing, you have to tell partners that, you have to tell other investors, you have to tell hires. And so the clearer communication and thinking you have, the more confidence that I have that you have uh, tremendous uh, potential. Do you guys think you were too late to do this? Why didn't we launch Sequoia Crypto Fund a year ago? So I definitely do not think we were too late. I really believe we're in inning two or whatever, to use a baseball analogy. Like we're still in the very beginning of crypto. I think I that, remember in 2017, people used to say, we're not even in the first inning. We're just lacing our boots in the dugout. <laughs> no, but I really do believe it's that. I think that, you know, there's... I believe crypto is going to transform basically every industry on earth. Like crypto is going to change money. Like it's going to become reserve currencies for nations. Like I think we're still very early. Sequoia, like we've been investing in crypto, but we weren't ready to start a liquid token fund until we became an RAA. And so there was like a prerequisite that came from the fact that we already had like a, a structure. So this was like the first thing we did. We did it concurrently with launching the Sequoia fund. Not too late. And this is the earliest we could do it. 
I had to ask. Uh, well, we'll have to leave it at that, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have to go on to television right now. So appreciate you guys taking the time. Where can our audience follow you, learn more about what you're working on? Twitter, website, our emails are actually on there. Ping us anytime. Plus one. Perfect. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. We will be back with you soon with another great guest or maybe two guests. Who knows? <laughs> Take it easy. Bye.